Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, October the 26th, 2023. Uh, regular viewers, listeners know that over the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, discussing an interesting new anthology, Going for Broke, Living on the Edge in the World's Richest Country. Um, going for Broke is, of course, ironic. And we all know what the richest country is or what is supposed to be the richest country. I'm not sure if it's actually true, but the United States likes to think of itself as the richest country. Um, it's a book put together by an excellent um, nonprofit, uh, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project that was started by Barbara Ehrenreich. And we've done shows with the editor of it, um, Alyssa Quart, an old friend of the show. She's been on the show a couple of times uh, with some people on the front lines of what it's like to live in poverty in America. Andrea, uh, Andrea Wagner, for example, uh, uh, a young woman living in Tuscaloosa, as well as people who are helping or trying to help the growing inequalities in America. We did a show with Annabelle Gerwich, a well-known Hollywood uh, actress and best-selling writer. Uh, one guy I wouldn't expect to show up in a book like this is my guest, Ray Suarez. Many people know Ray Suarez as one of the most ubiquitous voices on PBS and NPR. Uh, but he has a, an essay in this book called... Um, that sinking feeling. And, and, and Ray explains it in an interesting way at the end of his essay. He asks, uh, why me? Why me being Ray Suarez? Why am I in this section as someone who's flirted with poverty? And then he, he writes, given my age, given the numbers, given the realities of work in America for those who are displaced, I could well ask, why not me? Ray is joining us from Washington, D.C. Ray, why me? Why not me? Tell me your story and how you ended up uh, in this book. As I said, I was surprised and, and rather depressed, I guess, to find you in a book like this. Well, Andrew, I wanted to talk about older workers. I think we sometimes forget how tough it can be to stay in the workplace, even when all the big voices in the culture are telling you, you better not retire too early. Don't take that social security check too early. Save up. Don't think that you can you can be like those handsome gray-haired people in the commercials you see who seem to have time to swan around on boats. You're not them. And I took it to heart. And I did everything those big voices in the culture said, including working really hard. And after the company that I was working for, Al Jazeera America, went belly up in 2016, I really wasn't worried. I had a great resume. I had solid experience and a record of success and achievement. And I thought, you know, it may take me a little while to get the next thing, but there will be a next thing. And it took me some time to realize that I was in new territory and that as an older worker, I simply couldn't let my work speak for itself because there were different forces at work in the workplace. And uh, th that may have been my last full-time job. And as it turns out, 
it may be. You know, and I've heard this before with people who are who are victims, if you like, of this place in America that's supposed to be the richest country in the world. And they say, and, and you write this, um, I obeyed all the rules. I did everything I was supposed to do. Uh, and, and I'm quoting you. I climbed the ladder in a very competitive business. Uh, I did all the things that would made me the hero of my of financial advice column. Got married, stay married, paid off my mortgage years early, fully covered three college educations so my kids wouldn't have to borrow. But isn't America a country, Ray, for better or worse, where you're not supposed to obey the, the rules and that America has always prided itself on disobedience? So in a way, I'm not suggesting that the people who obeyed the, the rules deserve their fate, but being American requires challenging convention, breaking the laws. Let me say that I understand your question entirely but that when you're writing from the point of view of a first-gen college person, uh, the, the descendant of a family that came to this country from Puerto Rico, and my father grew up in grinding, horrifying poverty. Uh, the, the difference is when you're one of those people, I grew up working class in Brooklyn, New York, you're told the way you rise above your circumstances is by following the rules. Because if you break them, in fact, you don't have the same kind of latitude mm. that many of your white middle-class classmates have. They'll recover. Their parents can make a couple of phone calls. They know lawyers. They know people who've been to college. You, however, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Up From Under guy, you have to keep your nose clean because you'll just become a statistic if you fool around. And people who grew up like me get a very different message about what it takes to get ahead in America. Ray, do you think that might also be true of you in, a, in, in the high-end media business? We had Jake Tapper on the show recently as a new novel out. He's done remarkably well. He was a charming man. Uh, he's ubiquitous on uh cnn whenever i go to the gym he's on every television in the gym he's got a best-selling novel and he's a white american growing up in philadelphia probably with all the advantages that white male americans have do you think that for you as someone who who was from a, a poorer family an immigrant family working in a similar business to jake tapper that it's tougher for guys like you i don't I would say different. I don't know about tougher because I only know my own experience. But I was coming into a business where there were very few people like me. I, I got my first job in a newsroom with a paycheck attached in 1976. And that's getting to be a long time ago now. And it wasn't like I could walk through newsrooms in America, even in New York, which was home to you know millions of Latinos. And see people like me working there. Uh, I was part of a vanguard generation entering the business and you didn't feel like you had a lot of uh, room for maneuver. You were being assessed in a different way. A lot of places had to be sued before they'd hire black and brown editorial employees in the first place. So, uh, you know, no shade on Jake. He 
Yeah, he and I don't mean bones. to pick on Jake. He's just yeah, yeah. But you know, he earned his bones. He came up the hard way. Um, but I just say it's it's different for people like me, people of my generation. It's entirely different now. If you are a, a young college educated, black or brown aspiring journalist, the landscape is very different. And uh, and I can't talk to that experience, but I can tell you that uh, when I walked into newsrooms in the 70s for interviews for entry-level editorial jobs, uh, you didn't see many Latino staff in any capacity outside of cleaning the place at the end of the workday. And you certainly weren't ever interviewed by a black or brown person. We're speaking with Ray Suarez, a very well-known journalist, um, worked for PBS, Al Jazeera. NPR has a new book coming out, uh, but he has a wonderful, I wouldn't say wonderful, I think jarring, very disturbing essay in uh, in Going for Broke um, called That Sinking Feeling. R Ray, you mentioned that things have changed since the 70s. Um, I know you've got kids, you probably know younger people trying to get into the journalism business. There are two narratives here. On the one hand, some people say, that it's easier because you can blog, you can be on Substack, you can be on YouTube, and you don't need the first that first job at NPR or the New York Times. And there are others who say that it's increasingly a winner-take-all economy. There's a few Jake Tappers, um, and everybody else is giving their labor away for free on uh, Instagram and, and, and TikTok. What's your take on journalism and its supposed democratization? Both of those stories that you just quickly outlined are true at the same time. And that's part of the difficulty of this movement, of this moment. The business model of American journalists have, has been trashed. And we're trying to rebuild the plane at 35,000 feet. And it's not going very well. There are fewer people working in journalism today than there were 25 years ago. And there's tremendously more stuff in the pipeline, video, audio, uh, words. So yes, democratization has happened in part because the route to get to somebody's eardrums or eyeballs uh, is more democratized, is flattened. The, um, the tools that we use to tell stories have become more accessible to more people. My first job in television as a correspondent for CNN in the Los Angeles Bureau, the camera and the lens were over $40,000. And today you and I could walk into an electronic store in a strip mall in America and buy a camera that takes a better picture for less than $500. The access to the, the tools of news gathering and storytelling is more democratic. The internet has smashed the uh, monopoly of television and radio and newspapers uh, that stood between a creator and the audience. And at the same time, trying to get steady work, trying to make a decent living from year to year to year so you can have some of the security that, uh, that you might have been hoping for, that's a very circuitous path and only open to a few people who manage to break through. So both things are true at the same time. I don't know what to tell you.
you got a, a couple of kids. I'm sure you've talked to them about what they will do or are doing or should do in terms of their careers. Would you ever advise them to be journalists or would you warn them <laughs> off it? I would. I told them all the time they were growing up uh, what a hard way of life it was. And I always used that term because it is a way of life. It's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of being in the world that is different from being an accountant or a school teacher. Uh, my children are all adults now. Uh, my son is in tech and uh, doing quite well, as so many are. Who does he uh, work for? He works for a Chicago-based securities trading firm. He does the security and tech side of securities trading. And it's a very, very um, high stress uh, and very competitive field, but he has, uh, he has done quite well. My daughter is an ordained person. Uh, she is a canon at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City, an ordained uh, Episcopal priest, and uh, a very talented writer and a very gifted speaker. She has a lot of the tools that would have made her a fine journalist. I think she's much happier doing this kind of work than she would have. And she, she uh, would probably say, uh, Ray, that you have all the tools to have been a, a fine priest. Yes, she might. <laughs> she might. <laughs> and uh, I did think about it when I was young and um, and went another way because because uh, I thought it might be better suited uh, to my to my circumstances. They're not that different, the, the trades, though, are they? Do you think of being a priest? They use a, a lot of the same. And, and being a journalist? Yeah. yeah, they use a lot of the same basic You have materials. to be trusted. And, and that comes to the whole issue of media and trust. I mean, I want to talk, of course, about inequality, but you've been on the front lines of the media business and American politics now for 50 years, um, or almost 50 years. What comes first, the crisis of journalism or the crisis of democracy? Or are they so tangled up together that they're impossible to separate? They are heavily intertwined. But let me tell you, journalism is not alone in this regard. Uh, social science, public research institutions have been asking Americans about who they trust and how much and those sorts of questions since the end of the Second World War. And the news business, along with the academy and the church and law enforcement and the scientific community, has been declining in trust and in the authority with which it speaks to society steadily for the last 60 years. It's just that when journalism can't be believed, it feels like it's a much more critical thing. Uh, because it's the way we know what's going on in the world and the way we figure out how we're supposed to proceed as individuals, as citizens living in a society. It's very important that journalism has lost the authority with which it speaks to society, has lost the trust. Uh, and I'm not sure how we get it back in the crazy quilt world that we're in now, where you can believe whatever you want and you can almost make up whatever you want and ask other people to believe it. The old road to getting people's attention was fairly narrow. And now it's very broad. And you have people believing things that are, frankly, kind of batty. 
but that doesn't make mean that there's a shortage of people who believe them. Yeah, and I think this issue of trust is is terribly important. And that's why I always liked you as a journalist. For me, listening to Ray Suarez um, w was a positive experience because on the one hand, I trusted you. You had that manner, that voice. But on the other hand, you never pretended you were objective. And I think one of the problems with contemporary American journalism is that people confuse trust and objectivity. What do you think? Well, I think a, a certain amount of objectivity has to be Well, I mean, it's there. given. You're not because just some sort the, of hardcore propagandist, but you never disguised your politics. Well, the, the trust has to come from the audience's faith, their confidence that you've considered a lot of different things, that you didn't have an opinion and then build the case to suit the opinion. Uh, I never would have made it, I think, if, if the audiences that have watched me and listened to me for the last 40 years were convinced that that was true. Uh, they trust me to ask tough questions of people from all parts of the ideological spectrum. They ask me to hold people to account, and I try to do that. And I try to uh, be sure that I've considered all the possibilities, both the case and the counter case. And that's how you keep faith with the people that you work for. And I don't, I, I don't exaggerate. I consider that a public trust. And I do consider the public the people I work for, uh, along with my bosses, certainly. It would be disingenuous to say otherwise. But I work for the public. We all work for someone, Ray. I, I mean, we all, we all need to make our money. I, I need to thank Liberties, uh, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication, actually, Ray. I think you'll enjoy it. We, as a guest of Keenan, you're going to have an annual free subscription. Oh, terrific! Uh, it's put out. It's an excellent new publication addressing many of the key issues that we discuss on the show. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then I want to come back talk more to Ray Suarez, particularly about, uh, get into the details of his, um, I guess it's a scary piece about why me and, and what's happening in America today. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with the great Ray Suarez. Uh, everybody knows his voice and face. One of America's most ubiquitous and trusted journalists. Had, I said a 50-year career earlier, Ray. You politely corrected me, said 40. You're not that old. Um, but you've certainly been around a while. You know uh, American journalism inside out. And you, you've written this uh, troubling piece, I guess, in, 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 um, in a new book called Going for Broke. Why Me? Um, it's an essay about uh, your own experience flirting, that sinking feeling, flirting, if not with poverty, with deep economic insecurity. The book is divided into five parts, and the fifth part is on social class. And it comes with an introduction from Astra Taylor, an old friend of mine. She's been on the show. She wrote, when I was young, everyone was middle class. The, Amer the United States, we were told, until the aughts was a big, undifferentiated mass. 
some poor people at the bottom, sure, and a few rich people at the top. But the myth was that most people lived in between. Um, the, the 2008 financial crisis woke the country up to the fact that the economic rewards were not, in fact, distributed on a curve. Do you agree with Astor? Is, is that what happened in, in 2008? Did suddenly America come to terms with its truth, with its reality? It shook us up. It reminded that millions of people had the flames uh, licking around the bottom of their feet, that the ground that they were standing on wasn't very secure. But then after the crisis was over, we kind of went back to sleep. Yes, uh, the 2008 economic crisis illustrated for millions of families that they weren't as safe as they thought they were. But also a lot of people had done things um, lulled by easy money, lulled by easy access to capital that probably weren't good ideas. I was touring uh, subdivisions in places like Arizona and the suburbs of Las Vegas, where developers were telling me that at the end of the build out, some of the construction workers bought three houses, one for themselves to live in, one to rent, and one to flip. And they could do it with almost no money down. And that was the part that uh, tripped people up when suddenly some of these bills came due unexpectedly fast. I was talking with a United States Senator about this very subject, and we agreed that, you know, traveling through the country, driving down a street where the houses from the outside look very similar to each other, doesn't really tell you what's going on in that house. Some people are in hock up to their eyeballs and live right next door to somebody who's quietly been saving 15, 20% of their income every year and will retire a millionaire. The outward appearance of affluence, of comfort, of uh, having money to spend on some of the more enjoyable things in life, uh, we, we were on a sugar high for years. And uh, it all came, it all came a cropper, I guess uh, the old phrase is. And then, weirdly, uh, people started to borrow money again because money was extremely cheap, and we didn't learn our lesson in any in any permanent kind of way. Do you think there was sufficient accountability for that crisis? You mentioned that the guy who put everything in heart and bought two or three subdivisions, no doubt went bankrupt, lost everything. Uh, guys like you who played by the rules were also hurt. But very few people, certainly on Wall Street in the big banks, went to, to jail. No one seems accountable. The government bailed out the banks. Do you, are you personally, um, is that one reason why you, you think we, we perhaps shouldn't trust government? Are you disappointed? And do you think there's a sense of disappointment in, in everyone you talk to in America about what happened back then? Andrew, one of the most shocking interviews I did during that period was with the new head of AIG. After mm. the old head of AIG was turfed out, the government took over the assets of the corporation. And one of the things he was engaged in was petitioning to be allowed to pay 
his senior staff seven-figure bonuses. And here was a company whose unraveling, whose potential unraveling, could have taken down the whole structure because of the uh, pollinization of risk that was happening in that economy before everything went to hell. And he was bailed out by the American taxpayer and he was straining under the constraints of not being able to pay top management million dollar bonuses. I was almost, I didn't want to signal my incredulousness to the audience. Mm. I just, because <laughs> I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, just take your, take your licks and rebuild this company and get back on your feet, will you? I mean, it was just unbelievable. He said he couldn't find the expertise without the prospect of paying those bonuses. And I reminded him that it was the expertise of these same people that got us to the point where the government owned the assets of his company and its potential failure had taken the entire structure of the American economy to the brink of insolvency. It was astonishing. But those people were living in another world, a very different world from 330 million other Americans. It's, and they didn't recognize it. They thought they played by their own rules, lived in their own world, and then the results convinced them that it was true. Very, very few people went to prison uh, and only for brief amounts of time. And it wasn't judgment calls. They were doing stuff that was breaking the law, breaking trust, and putting everybody else's lives, economic lives, at risk. It was a stunning time. And the fact that there was no accountability sits badly with a lot of people. But also at the same time, the people who were trying to keep the whole thing from collapsing were convinced and a little bit afraid that if they really started kicking ass and taking names, that um, the whole the gears would seize up and the whole machine would stop working. It was almost like America was held hostage in a very, very significant way. It's almost enough uh, right, to make us all into socialists, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, not quite, but uh, in a, at least have a healthy skepticism about these guys handing each other million-dollar bonuses and insisting that they're the people who really know what's what. I was talking to a major home builders national convention in the early years of this century, and we had just come through several years where the price of a home had increased much faster than national income, year after year after year. And I got up there and said in this swell hotel ballroom that you can't have house prices that increase faster than the population and faster than incomes year after year after year. That's not capitalism, that's cannibalism. Because every new home you build that there's not a buyer for helps undermine the value of every existing house. And I got, understandably, very tepid applause at the end of this speech. And then later, when dessert was being served, one of the big honchos from this group passed by and whispered to me, "It's you don't understand, it's different this time. 
Well, guess yeah, what? We're always here. It it's wasn't. It's always going to be different. We hear that in Silicon Valley too, right? After every boom, we always told it it's different this time, and it never is. So, what you're saying then is you're in favor of capitalism, just not cannibalism. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, work hard, save your money, uh, take risks that you think are prudent and might have a payoff, but don't expect to be saved by somebody else from the consequences of your risk. I mean, that's that's how this country became so wealthy and made and so many people wealthy who came right, here from every say, corner yeah, of the Everyone's planet. taking risks except the wealthy, and that's the nature of the system. Um, well, yeah, I mean, a, a, a socialized risk and uh, privatized profit is not not Say my that again, idea socialized risk. Socialized risk and personalized profit is not my idea of capital. Ray, earlier this week, I did, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of David Leonhardt, an excellent economics writer for the uh, New York Times. He has a new book out uh, dealing with all the issues we're talking about. Everyone's talking one way or the other, writing about the same things these days. Ours was the shining future, the story of the American dream. He's quite hard-hitting, Leonhardt. And one of the things that he argues is that progressives need to be more populist. They missed their opportunity in the 60s. Uh, RFK was the last genuine progressive populist. And one area that I'm guessing you would probably disagree on with, with, um, with uh, Leonhardt is the issue of immigration. You've got a book coming out next year. We are home, becoming American in the 21st century in oral history. I'm actually going to get you back on the show to talk about that next year in April when it's out. But Leonhardt says that the left or progressives need to be more aggressive in terms of, if not opposing immigration, addressing the issue. Do you agree? Is it one of the problems? I, David's an excellent journalist, a top-notch reporter. And I disagree with him slightly. I think the messaging, the explanation, the understanding of immigration that's transmitted from our elected leaders uh, to the mass of us is, uh, on the one hand, needlessly hyperbolic and needlessly panicky, and on the other hand, um, needlessly bland. Yes, of course, uh, when people come here in large numbers, it means adjustment. Secretary Mayorkas, the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, President Biden, have both tried in their way to discuss what's going on in the southern border. They've been totally outflanked by people who are perfectly comfortable uh, not telling the truth about what's going on in the border. There is a hemispheric crisis people on the move and those who go on TV every day and call it an invasion, who say that the border is out of control, that we have no border, that the United States has open borders. It's not true. But the people who don't believe that and may even be in possession of the facts uh, aren't providing any kind of counter message, counter message. They aren't providing any explanation of what's going on. When millions of people leave Venezuela, millions, well, they went somewhere. Most of them went to nearby nations in Latin America. 
Many of them are headed for the southern border of the United States. Many of them have relatives already here. We can pretend there's no crisis in Venezuela. We can pretend there's no economic meltdown in Cuba, where many of the people heading for the U.S. also have relatives already here. Uh, just dismissing it as, as an invasion uh, doesn't really get to whether or not, as the richest country in the hemisphere, the United States has any responsibility to help address what's going on, uh, help poorer countries in the hemisphere shoulder the burden, do its share to help uh, solve some of these problems. If we think that we can just sell people stuff at a profit and never have to deal with the lives that people are living in this hemisphere, that's a fool's paradise. It's a fool's paradise and, and un, sadly being exploited by a lot of American politicians who want to create a sense of toxically enough um, panic is rising and smartly in places where there are very few immigrants. If you go to many of the places where immigrants really live, they know the score. They know what's, what it's really like. You know, New York has as many undocumented people, illegally resident people living within its five counties as the entire population of Milwaukee. That's just the undocumented. Queens County, one of the five constituent counties of New York City, 40% of the people who live there were born in another country. You don't see social chaos, cultural meltdown, uh, constant rising threat. You know, we can be kind. We can talk about each other's problems in a little bit more understanding way and not be mealy-mouthed and not, uh, you know, be pablum puking about it. We can be honest and, and straightforward with each other. It's a shame what's going on with the way the border and the broken American immigration system is being handled politically. And we'll talk more about that when your book comes out in April. I'd love to get you back on the show. A couple of other areas where I'm sure you're more in sync with Lee and Hart in terms of what I call at least resurrecting the American dream, if it can be resurrected, and of course, if it ever existed in the first place. One is rebuilding organized labor, and the other is constitutional reform. What, what do you think of those two arguments that, not just Leonard's, we've had many others on the show talking about both these issues in terms of making America fairer again, avoiding kinds of essays like that sinking feeling? One of the greatest con jobs that's ever been pulled off in modern American history and there have been many, of course. Right? And there have been many. So there's a long list of, to make comparisons. <laughs> was convincing American workers that they're better off without a union. Because it's easily demonstrated that security is higher, wages are higher, and benefits are higher. So why did Americans become so convinced? The people who hate unions whispered in their ear for 50 years that they didn't need a union. They were standing on their own two feet and living on the value of their own good hard work. Playing into American individualism was a smart gambit in this regard. And the idea that you, you lose your individualism when you join a union, 
was a really, really uh, great scam, and it worked. We're now down to 10, 12% of, uh, of the workforce being unionized. And of that 10, 12%, a tremendous number work for government, don't work for private industry. So uh, when you see even the state of Michigan passing right to work laws, you know we're in some different kind of territory. They've since repealed them, but uh, you know the right to work law is also the right to get paid less law. And they'll never tell you that part. So reviving the American labor movement, uh, which helped build this broad, affluent middle class, that wouldn't be a bad idea. It's a steep uphill climb, but it's possible. Constitutional reform, when the Constitution was ratified, the ratio between the largest and smallest state was between Virginia and Rhode Island. Virginia's population was roughly 12 times the size of Rhode Island's in 1789. Now the ratio between the largest and smallest state is over 30 times. California has a population uh, that's well over 30 times larger than Wyoming's, and they both get two senators. To join the United States Senate from Wyoming, you are talking to an electorate that's smaller than congressional districts in most of the country. So uh, constitutional reform should be on the menu. I think a lot of people are justifiably afraid that once you open that box, that all kinds of unexpected things can fly out of it. And I think that builds in some useful and necessary caution. But when we are looking by mid-century at a Senate where there are 70 seats held by 30% of the population, we have to talk about it because it distorts uh, national voting results. It distorts presidential elections. It's not just about blue and red and about urban and rural. Uh, you would have permanent minority rule, which seems to be just fine with a lot of people who are convinced they'll be part of the minority that's ruling. But it's a it's a problem. I wonder what you think, um, uh, Ray, of David Lee. And again, I don't want to pick on David because he's not alone in this. But there are a lot of people on the left now, progressives, or at least claim to be on the left, claim to be progressive, who believe that in the 60s, the left took the wrong fork in the road. And they, what Leon Hart talks about is something he described as Brahmin liberalism, a university liberalism focused on sexual, cultural, gendered, racial identity. Do you think that one of the reasons why, why America seems to have taken uh, a wrong turn in the early 21st century is because of this Brahmin liberalism? I think if you have a political party that has its most reliable voters coming from a small slice of the population, as if you want to be a national party, that's probably a bad idea. I wouldn't flatten it or simplify the argument to that point. Big governing parties in a two-party system have always brought together strange bedfellows. For a hundred years, from the end of the Civil War till the um, the Johnson era civil rights acts were signed, the Democratic Party was this bizarre agglomeration of uh, Great Lakes and East Coast, huge immigrant populations, heavily Catholic, and 
Southern segregationists. Uh, black populations in Chicago and New York and Detroit and Philadelphia, and people who uh, wanted you to step off the sidewalk if you were black, if you're walking on the streets of uh, Birmingham or Montgomery. And that was the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, I suppose you can you can sit and wring your hands about where the Democratic Party went wrong. The Republican Party has totally changed beyond all recognition uh, since those Johnson era civil rights acts were signed. It's changed tremendously. Who's in it? Their self-concept. Um, you would have found in a lot of national organizations that pushed for a kind of broad, secular, civic nationalism, you would have found all the grandees of the Republican Party on their list of donors and the boards of directors. Uh, you wouldn't have uh, seen uh, what you saw after the election of the latest speaker, a group of them taking a knee in the well of the House of Representatives and having public prayer uh, there. Uh, a lot of cultural currents had to be accommodated. A lot of things that were pent up and bound up by 50s straight-laced conservatism, small c conservatism, not political conservatism, were bound to be unleashed by the 1960s. And then the country continued to change as it changed economically, as it changed demographically, it changed culturally as well. Uh, the declining faith in religion as an institution meant that a sizable part of the population was gonna hive off and, and make its own way apart from the authority of religious leaders. You just, that was gonna happen. The idea that we were still gonna be uh, like the, uh, the opening day, the ribbon cutting days of Levittown um, in the 1950s, that just wasn't in the cards. And David Leonhardt knows that as well. And I, I, I look forward to reading his book. Let's end, you've been wonderfully generous with your time, Ray. Let's end going back to your essay. You begin the essay saying that you were on a, a busy DC street with your teenage daughter and, and she asked, what are you afraid of? It reminded me of the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes who argues that, um, who argued 70, uh, uh, 17th century English philosopher that uh, we're defined by our fear. And, and you said what you were scared of was being poor. That's the message in the book. You're not poor, you escape, you're still doing okay, maybe not quite as okay as you thought you would, but that's the message in the essay. And then everyone's going through the same thing and you're still better off than most. I wonder if it's this idea of fear and the lottery of life that we need to rethink in America. A few months ago, we had a young English philosopher, Daniel Chandler on the show, asking what a fair society should look like. He has a new book out, Free and Equal, which is based on the philosophy of an American political theorist, uh, John Rawls. I'm sure you're familiar with Rawls's idea of a thought experiment called the original position in which we all imagine falling through the cracks. We're never quite sure, Ray, whether we will, but we might. Is that how we perhaps could rethink American society? It's always going to be a bit of a casino, a lottery. There are always going to be successes. Sure. There are always going to be Ray Suarez's. There are always going to be people who, who don't quite make it as Ray Suarez. Do we have to acknowledge that we're all fearful of failure if we're to rebuild the social safety net? I began the essay with that anecdote 
for a very specific reason. I didn't even think about, it wasn't like I said, hmm, let me think about that. Uh, and mulled over the question and then came up with a thoughtful answer. It came from somewhere in my, you know, involuntary limbic. It came from your Thomas Hobbes. We've all got a bit of Thomas Hobbes in Australia, I think. I was standing waiting for that red light. My daughter asked me out of nowhere. I, I mean, I guess, you know, a daughter might think of her father as someone who doesn't go through life afraid or... And I don't really think of myself as afraid of things. I don't uh, act out of fear. And what shocked me was how that answer came out of nowhere. But then when I thought about it, I thought, well, I guess that's my real answer because I've run hard my entire life to try to make sure that wouldn't happen. And real poverty, real live hardcore poverty was in my, you know, I guess my, my familial memory. I grew up on stories of how hard it was uh, right after the Second World War and in the early 50s in Puerto Rico. And so without even, without even consciously doing it, I had absorbed those lessons and, you know, tried to do everything to be the, the smartest guy in the class and and secure and unassailably secure. And what I go on to explain in that essay was that you could do all of that and still end up scrambling because America is kind of that place. You know, you, you are guaranteed nothing. And maybe, maybe that's part of its genius as well of its, as its fear. But I had the illusion that I had done everything to kind of build in an insurance policy around myself. And I had. So we should all imagine that we could lose if we're to, coming back to my question, if we're to, if we're to build a, a safety net that people can acknowledge that it doesn't get described by conservatives as socialist or communist, do we all have to imagine ourselves as losers and recognize that that's not something we want to deal with? A decent society would not assure that you're never going to fall or never going to fail. A decent society would be one that reassures you that if you fall mm. and if you fail, you can't fall too far. You shouldn't be able to fall into complete desperation or degradation. And that that's what a, a humane, a more humane, society might look like. We can all have a long conversation and we can disagree about what that might consist of. But why don't we start from at least the proposition that looking out for each other might involve putting that much of a guarantee in place. That if you fall, we won't let you fall into utter desperation. 